возлюбленной Богом Церковь, начиная наше богослужение пред Господом, встанем, пожалуйста, и утвердим обетование, относящееся к преддверию нашей надежды, да воцарится воскресение Христова в наших телах. Склоним наши головы в молитве. Дорогой Небесный Отец, во имя Иисуса Христа, мы благодарны имени Твоему Святому за вновь представленную привилегию быть на месте всем, которое очертила десница Твоя для поклонения Святому имени Твоему. И ныне позволь наследию Твоему во имя крови завета подняться на вершины для нас недосягаемые и сокрушить всякое бремя и запинающий нас грех. Да будут прокляты в этом служении, как и прежде, все дела дьявола, болезни, нищета, преждевременная смерть, демоническая зависимость, всевозможные страхи, депрессии, разрушение, косность, невежество – все это да отступит от шатров святого народа Твоего. И ныне встань, Господи, на место покоя Твоего Ты и ковчег могущества Твоего, и да облекутся святые Твои спасением Твоим, и да возрадуются пред лицом Твоим. Дай нам больше от Духа Твоего. Пропитай нас Духом Твоим святым. Позволь нам найти светлое лицо Твое. Я представляю это служение в Твои божественные руки, виде Его, рукою превознесенную, великий Бог, Отец и Дух Святой. Аминь. Да благословит вас Господь, можете садиться. Взывая к тебе, свя... 
Luke chapter 12, verses 15 and 21. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Covetousness. This is the requirement when Christ says take heed this means to be careful keep, keep yourselves watch after your hearts in purity from this blemish and according to this warning it follows that the life of a person is made completely dependent on that for whom or in whom we will become enriched in for us or for ourselves to become enriched in god means to invest or to place our money in that place where it is not destroyed so, into the heavenly bank, or in the heavenly treasury, which is the essence of God. The branches of the heavenly bank on earth represent local churches. Those local churches, churches that preach the teaching of Jesus Christ who came, in the, who came in the flesh, that abide in this teaching. Considering the principle where your riches are, there your heart will be, it follows that to become rich in God is to demonstrate a kind of righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that are founded on the law of Moses. Matthew 5.20 For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. How must our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? To exceed uh, righteousness is to offer God tithes and offerings according to the law of grace, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had done. To these righteous men, were they, were, they knew the law of grace in which they, offering tithes to Melchizedek, the king and priest of the God Most High, they practiced righteousness or they demonstrated their righteousness which they had received through faith as a gift of grace. Whereas the scribes and Pharisees, on the contrary, they tried to gain their righteousness when they offered their tithe to Levi. You see what kind of difference there exists? Some had thanked God the fact for the fact that they are righteous. They had given because they were righteous. Righteous. They had affirmed that they are holy unto the Lord. And the others, they did not affirm. They strive to become so. 
And this is the difference in them because we know that tithes or the law of tithes, it is not tied to the law of Moses. It found its place in it, but it dwelled long before the law of Moses and even long before Abraham because when Abraham had come into the land of Canaan, then the priest Melchizedek he had already he was already found there and the people who lived in that land of Canaan they had brought their tithes and offerings they knew God at that moment yes some had departed away from God at times but many of the tribes of Canaan that land they knew God and they had offered and they had honored God in tithes and offerings and of course as we say this law God had immediately established as soon as he brought a person into the Garden of Eden in order to communicate with him that he had demonstrated that in order for man to communicate with God it is necessary for him to to honor the commandment of tithes and offerings which he had planted in the garden of eden in the dignity of the knowledge of good and evil he had said this is my belonging only i know what is good and what is evil don't try outside of me and without me to try to acknowledge it here are all the trees in the garden in the tree of life from which you may eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil do not eat, for the day in which you eat of it you will die. Turning to God always began with specifically offering tithes. God had turned to Israel when they had turned away from him. He said, Do you want to turn to me? Bring all the tithes to my storehouse that my home may have food. Do you see from where communication with God begins? Honor me. Don't touch what is mine. This does not necessarily mean that God did not want a person to knowledge, to have knowledge of good and evil or to know that which God knows. But in that moment, Adam, having been a person who is carnal, did not have the legal right to have knowledge of good and evil. When he will become a spiritual person in the face of Jesus Christ, then he will be given the legal status to use this. And we know that the priests of the Old Testament, the Levites, they had used tithes and offerings. They had access to it, and any Israelite, any regular Israelite, if he had gone against tithes, then he had died the Lord. And these on the contrary, if they did not eat of the knowledge of good and evil, they will perish. So Satan had lied to man. He said, God doesn't want you to be in the likeness of him. God knows that when you eat of it, you will be in the likeness of him, and he therefore he doesn't want you to do that. God wants man to be in the likeness of him. That's why he had created man, but it was necessary to walk to walk the path that Satan, having lied to a person, said, you don't need this long path. Just take it. Take it and eat it. This means that he said, you don't need to give tithes and offerings. This is a part of the Old Testament. Take and eat these tithes. You are already like God. This is what the calamity lies in. 
Therefore, let us remember this when we honor God and we honor Him in tithes and offerings because they have relocated. They found themselves before the law, they found themselves in the law, and they passed on in the New Testament in the ministry of justification. Hebrews writes in chapter 6, and here in the Old Testament, people, mortal people, Adam, take in, in the New Tes Testament, they take them as well. Apostles didn't even have any ideas to say things like uh, the tithes are a part of the Old Testament. No, this, those who are covetous, who are lovers of money, that's who, that's who says this. And they express themselves as righteous, having been lawless sinners. They withhold their tithes. By withholding your tithes, you say, I am not holy unto you. So you yourselves consider yourselves gods. You try to attribute these tithes to yourselves, but it belongs to God. And God says, I want to see where you will be at the end of your path. And the end of the path is very soon, very close. All of the events that are occurring in the world, inside of the church, and the, and the things going on, in the world, in the natural world, means that we have come close to a joyful end to some and a horrific end to others. I'm talking about those who were saved, came to church, but those who had then challenged God, challenged God with their own minds, and they did not want to partake in service and honor God with tithes and offerings. We have this honor and this kind of privilege, this kind of faithfulness and this kind of joy. And we are going to serve God with tithes and offerings right now. Let us stand and let us sing to God. Let us remember that each time when we honor God in tithes and offerings, with tithes and offerings, we express our love. We acknowledge His authority over us. And we, in this time, worship Him, honor Him. Without off the offerings of tithes, where we voluntarily and with joy offer them, there does not exist any kind of worship nor any kind of legal right to enter into the throne of grace. And therefore, let us sing and praise God. And so I will remind you that each time when Israel had honored God with tithes and offerings, either in the tabernacle of Moses or in the temple of Solomon, they were called to, according to the words of Moses that he had received as a revelation from God, to raise their hands, lay their hands over their offerings, and to proclaim before God one unique proclamation that they were faithful to for thousands of years. We, being that same Israel, tied to that same root, drinking from the same olive tree will do the same thing. Please raise your right hands, a symbol of your righteous act, over your offerings and pray along with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I have separated the tithes from my home and brought them into your home so that your home may have food. I did not give impurely. I did not give in sorrow. I did not give for the dead. I rejoice that I have the privilege to express my love and to acknowledge your authority. And according to your word, I ask you, right now, let your heavenly windows be opened 
and let your blessings come down abundantly upon your redeemed nation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated. Yes, yes, oh.
And so those of you who have a Bible, you can open along with me a familiar place of scripture to us. However, 
one that contains in itself such a deep mystery that unveiling it or acknowledging it is possible only in the dimension of our spirit with our hearts. Jeremiah 6.16, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Return to the ancient path of goodness. To look at the foundation of our study of the ancient path of goodness, we turn to the words of Apostle Paul, who, by the mercy and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in short and concise definitions, was able to formulate the contents of the order present in the teaching of Christ. And in studying this place of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1-2, through 2, we decided to use a more perfect and closer to the truth version of this translation. It sounds like this. Therefore, sprinkling ourselves with the reigning teachings of Christ and having been clothed in the armor of light contained in the reign of this teaching, let us go on to perfection and build ourselves into the house of God, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment в учении о воскресении мертвых и в учении о суде вечном. Each of the four reading teachings contain in themselves a triplicity of functions that yield the unearthly order of the kingdom of heaven, which together define the role and purpose of the twelve teachings of Christ who came in the flesh, demonstrating his royal authority in the twelve hours of the day for the invisible dimension. There are twelve hours of a day of the earthly dimension and the unearthly dimension. So, those that are found in the spirit, the image of which was contained in the twelve watchmen of the ancient path of goodness in the twelve gates of heavenly Jerusalem, on which were engraved the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel and the uh, twelve foundations of the walls of heavenly Jerusalem, on which were engraved the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In a certain format, as much as God and the love of all of our faith have allowed us, we have already studied the first three teachings and their purposes. And we've stopped to study the mystery of the triplicity that is contained in the foundational structures of eternal judgment, which in Scripture is presented in the dimension of the eastern side of heavenly Jerusalem, comprised of three gates. And so, the doctrine of eternal judgment, just as in the other three teachings, contains in itself three levels of the will of God. This is the good will, acceptable will, and the perfect Will. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. We have noted that in their union, the functions of the three levels of the will of God are yielded in Scripture as the creation of righteousness and the works of justice and the creation of sanctification in the works of holiness or in actions of holiness. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Revelation 22, verses 11 through 12. Only upon the union of the creation of righteousness and the creation of sanctification can these two actions present in one another and for one another the legal platform for their legal expression, and only in this union can they represent the doctrine of eternal judgment. 
Acknowledging the will of God is a sacred mystery that is found beyond the limits of our rational abilities that are called to occur between God and man and man and God. So this means that to achieve the teaching of Christ with the intellect is impossible. And this mystery is called to occur in the dimension of the Spirit through the mutual act in which God and man unite as one and become one Spirit. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? The two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15-17 The fulfillment of the will of God in the practice of righteousness and sanctification is always an expression of love toward God with simultaneous hatred toward lawlessness and the wicked who are carriers of this lawlessness and evil. The doctrine of eternal judgment with the contents of the good, acceptable, and perfect will is a triumphant accord in the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ. In a certain format, together in the doctrine of eternal judgment, which contains in itself three levels of the will of God, have already studied the first two levels in the powers of the good and acceptable will. We have stopped to study the third level expressing in the powers of the perfect will. On the wall of heavenly Jerusalem, comprised of twelve precious stones, the doctrine of eternal judgment expressed in the level of the perfect will is made of the precious amethyst stone. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the twelve foundation, Amethyst. Revelation chapter 21, verses 14 and 20. And so the image of every precious stone in the twelve foundations of the walls of heavenly Jerusalem is an image of a certain component that yields the character of a good heart, or that is called to yield the character of a good heart. We have noted that the precious amethyst stone is the most expensive variety of quartz. It has been valued since ancient times and, according to biblical descriptions, was inserted into the pectoral or the breastplate of the high priest Aaron among twelve precious stones. There are only two versions of the appearance of the name of this mineral. Translated from ancient Greek, it means sober virgin from which we can conclude that when God builds a relationship with a person through the powers contained in his perfect will, then he will address a person with a voice emanating from the innermost mystery of the unearthly amethyst, which on this foundation will represent the name of the Apostle Judas Iscariot. Matthew chapter 10, verses 2-4. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The twelfth is Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. We have already noted that it is the name of the apostle written on each of the twelve foundations of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem that yields and characterizes this foundation. And in this case, the powers contained in the name of Judas Iscariot reveal in this foundation the nature and purpose of the perfect will of God. John 6, 70-71 Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. 
Thus we learn that the father of Judas from the Jewish village of Kerioth was a certain Jew named Simon. We've noted that God placed fates, callings, and characteristics of the kingdom of heaven in the names of his nation, and therefore the acceptance of every name in which God implemented the fate of his nation is the acceptance of the immovable kingdom of God in which is placed the calling and place that is contained in the kingdom of heaven, which can be taken by someone who is worthy of this place. And if this someone leaves his place, he loses his dignity and place in the kingdom of heaven. The name is a person loses this place, this name in the kingdom of heaven. But the name itself and its dignity and place found, un, found in the structure of the kingdom of heaven remains unshakable and is immediately inherited by another who is worthy of it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28-29, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The name Judah means praise Yahweh, while the name Simon means to hear or listen. In their totality, these two names, in the twelfth foundation of the wall of heaven in Jerusalem, will mean empowered to offer praise to God in the format of God's perfect will that God will hear. And that this praise that God hears will serve as an opportunity for him to carry out the final judgment, which is not subject to change and appeal as a just retribution for the good sown and, the, and for the evil sown. Only in this union and in this sequence do these two dignities bring us into the level of the perfect will and make us partakers of those powers that are contained in the perfect will of the Heavenly Father. The very arrangement of the twelfth foundation in our heart, which endows us with the ability to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, becomes possible when we are born to the throne and we make with God the covenant of rest in fire baptism. Because it is in the covenant of rest that we find all of the conditions and instructions that relate to the powers of the perfect will. And let us remember that the functions contained in the powers of the perfect will can flow only upon the cooperation of man with God in the boundaries of this same perfect will, the character which is yielded in the name Judas Simon. And in this cooperation for each of the sides, there is a specific role that cannot be nullified or fulfilled by someone else. And so to cooperate with God in clothing our heart in the dignity of the name Judas Simon, it is necessary for us to study the functions contained in this name, as well as the role which God outlined for himself, as well as for us. Considering the format of this sermon, I will limit myself to several important components in which God, through cooperation with the powers of the perfect will, gives us the right to fulfill the judgments of God in the boundaries of those powers that are contained in the perfect will of the Heavenly Father. Let us not forget that all three levels of the will of God contained in eternal judgment pursue one goal but fulfill different functions in achieving this goal. And for this one goal is our and this one goal is our calling in Christ Jesus to practice righteousness and works 
of justice and practiced works of holiness and sanctification, not evangelism, not some other kinds of forms of services, but to practice righteousness and works of justice and practice works of holiness and sanctification. For each, uh, for everyone without exception, this applies. And so without knowledge and in cooperation with the perfect will of God, it is impossible to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfection in relation to the will of God, defining the initial goals of God and fulfilling His perfect and true judgments, means complete, full, one piece, undamaged, contains three levels of the will of God, able to meet all requirements, produces just retribution, soothing the heart of God, creates peace in God's relationship with man. The functions of the three levels of the will of God contained in the doctrine of eternal judgment are highlighted in different parables and images. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-2 through 2 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In these words, baptism into Moses is an image of the good will of God. Baptism into the cloud is an image of the acceptable will of God. Baptism in the sea is an image of the perfect will of God. I had heard how one pastor before had interpreted this place of scripture. He said this, that baptism in Moses is baptism into me. Baptism into the cloud is baptism into my helpers. And baptism in the sea is baptism into my church. And he began to baptize people in himself and his helpers and in his church. So it, it is so possible with the intellect to go so far off from the truth. In the goodwill, through its powers expressed in who God is for us and what God has done for us, we gained righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus and became holy by factor of our birth from the seed of the word of truth which on one end separated us from the world in the face of our nation and the world in the face of our nation is separated from us so we become independent from our nation nationality because in Christ Jesus there are no, no Ascidians nor Jews or excuse me no, uh, no Hellenes or Jews and thus through faith acting in the powers of the good will we condemn the world on the other end we receive the seal of righteousness which is called holy unto the Lord in the goodwill contained in the image of baptism to Moses, the Passover lamb was pierced, and then through his hope, the blood of the Passover lamb was sprinkled on the lintel and doorposts of a home. After that, the door was closed from the inside, and those in the dwelling had to put on clothes, gird themselves with a belt, put shoes on their feet, and take a staff in their hands. Only then, according to the existing statute, they had to eat the Passover lamb, baked whole on the fire with all the entrails and with bitter herbs. Thanks to this action, they received justification and became partakers of the covenant that God made with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those Israelites who did not fulfill the Passover statutes were destroyed from among their people. And those of the peoples who inhabited Egypt and fulfilled the Passover statutes joined the people chosen by God and became partakers of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
in cooperation with the powers of the acceptable will, when making a covenant of salt and baptism in the Holy Spirit, we receive the opportunity to practice righteousness and be sanctified within the boundaries of the authority of the acceptable will, because the word acceptable comes from the word to please, and to please means to do something that would gain favor in the eyes of God. And so, in the powers of the acceptable will, we, through the things that God has done for us, are called to practice righteousness and be sanctified so that we could please God. And for this goal, the acceptable will was called to separate our carnal beginning from our spirit born of God. So, to abolish, not to destroy, but to abolish, to separate. And thus, through faith acting in the powers of the acceptable will, on the one end, we abolish the leading authority of the old man who ruled over us, the genetic inheritance passed down to us from the sinful life of our fathers. On the other end, we receive the seal of righteousness that is called, the Lord knows those who are His. Considering the fact that the old man and new man live in one body, and this separation caused unusual discomfort and panic, reaching to the point of complete despair. And the new man, they, they both, the old man and the new man are not physical beings, but they live in a physical body. And the separation, again, caused discomfort and panic, reaching to the point of complete despair. I think everyone has endured this. This is what Paul had wrote about this. Romans 7, 22-25 I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. A wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Romans 7, 22-25 Imagine two people in the body. One serves the law of God and the other the law of uh, sin and death. What will you feel in yourselves? The flesh and the face of the old man remained in service to sin, but the new man received the ability to serve God and have victory over sin in the subject of one's lusts and desires. Yes, lusts and desires, they rise up, but you overcome them. And obviously, to live with these kind of lusts and desires is not a joy. And Satan constantly says, how holy are you? How righteous are you? Look at what you desire. Look what your desires are. Tell him, it's not me that desires this. It's the old nature. I don't desire this. Therefore, I don't do this. Therefore, I am fighting. I am justified in Christ Jesus. And so, in the acceptable will, which is contained in the image of baptism in the cloud, the nation of Israel was separated from their old man in the face of the army of Egypt, who pursued them to destroy them. But God, in the pillar of clouds, who at the time walked before them to show them the way, immediately relocated and stood behind them so that the Egyptians couldn't draw near to the Israelites all night. Arasayas, we have mentioned that this was a difficult night. The Israelites had heard behind them the sound of horses, the clatter of chariots, and the voices of the leaders of the elite Egyptian army. They were terrified and said to Moses, Why did you bring us out to kill us in the wilderness? We would remain alive if we were still slaves, but now we and our children have to die. Now, 
but they did not die because the cloud did not allow them to uh, draw near the earth, the Egyptians draw near to them. Oftentimes we feeling in ourselves and devil says, you are not saved, look at what is living in you. Look at what, what kind of heavens have you gathered up to. When you continually want sin, you continually want to fulfill your stress. What kind of heaven are you striving toward? But your new man must rejoice over him because you have two men, two people living in your body. In cooperation with the perfect will, when making a covenant of rest and fire baptism, we receive the seal of righteousness called the Lord is there, and we destroy the old man as the manufacturer of the sin. You will find his life will lose him. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10 39. There is an understanding in Scripture separation, abolishment, and there is such a thing as destruction. In the perfect will, the old man is destroyed. This is like we mentioned that there are, uh, there's a certain factory that releases weapons and airplanes and whatnot. We fight against these weapons and we in the name of Jesus Christ through the blood of the covenant because the blood cleanses us from all sin even when we do sin. We remain righteous upon our sin because the righteousness that we had received was not our work, it was the work of the Lord. He had justified us by the gift of grace through redemption in Christ Jesus. The righteous shall fall seven times, but get up. And we, through the blood of the covenant, in the uh, teaching of the blood, when confessing ourselves, we are free. And then the manufacture of the sin produces yet another and another. We go to church, we are grateful that God has uh, cleaned us and uh, forgiven us our sins and we leave church and we once again sin but in the perfect will this factory this manufacturer of sin is destroyed this supplier of sin is destroyed and we dedicate to God our reborn spirit in the status of a sacrifice by breaking and humbling ourselves before the perfect will of God then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, that they shall offer bulls on your altar. Psalms 51.19 Through a contrite and humble spirit, we receive the opportunity to fulfill the perfect will of God by affirming His judgments written previously in Scripture. And this perfect judgment we first fulfill not in relation to sin and the subject of fleshly lusts and desires, but in relation to the supplier of these desires, which is our old man with whom we continually war with. In the perfect will of God, the supplier of fleshly desires is abolished from power over our spirit. This supplier, formerly in the acceptable will, was abolished from power over us and is subject to death. In other words, if at the level of the acceptable will we constantly fought with the sin that our old nature, abolished from the power of our spirit, supplied, then in the perfect will of God, the supplier of sin is destroyed, and then our inner discomfort is replaced by silence, in which we enter the rest of God. And our relationship with God rises to a completely different level. In this level, a person is satisfied by only God, he is comforted by only God. Nothing can shake him. Inside, he has complete quietness and stillness. In the perfect will contained in the form of baptism in the sea, the people of Israel were finally freed from the persecutors when they saw them dead on the shores of the Red Sea. 
And then the pillar of clouds moved again and stood in front of the camp of Israel to show them the way to Horeb. Thus, the sphere of action of the camp of the perfect will is exclusively connected with our spirit. The perfect will, in contrast to the acceptable will, acts or begins its action among people born of the Spirit, previously separated by the baptism in the Holy Spirit by the power of a separating tongue. And so, the first power of the perfect will of the twelve foundation of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem is called to affirm judgment on the earth through a bruised reed and a smoking flax. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Throughout my whole Christian life, which became exciting, ebullient, and real for me, even from preschool age, I constantly heard that a bruised reed in a smoking flax is a person who is broken in his faith, which is practically in its complete extinction. This was the most beneficial feature used in the so-called revival and evangelism campaigns. The altar broadcasters and with them poets and singers simply choked, repeating and repeating one after another that the love of God consists in the fact that He loves people who have suffered, suffered shipwreck in their faith so much that He will find all the ways and save them and that each of us should be very careful to treat such people so as not to break those who are already broken in faith and not quench their almost dying flax. However, even if we arm ourselves with this idea and go in this direction and as humans, we risk posing as God and fulfilling His role. Indeed, this scripture says that this is His role and that it is He who will treat the bruised reed and smoking flax this way. Our role is for us to plant the seed of the kingdom and water it. And the role of God is that he will grow the seed in man with the participation of man himself. But if tares appear on his field, they should not be pulled out, since even the apostles will not always be able to distinguish tares from wheat. They will be so similar to each other. After all, tares are not people who waver in faith. The tares are people who have no faith at all, but who pretend they have it. They make it seem as if everything is right. There is no kind of battle in them or anything. They are super holy. They have only an outward appearance of godliness. And this prophetic allegory speaks of what God will perform with the authority of His perfect will, which will be represented by Him in whom His good will is. Why? Um, in Him, in, in whom His good will is. Therefore, the Son of God and we together in the Son of God are presented in this, uh, in this, in whom we are founded, because we are found in Christ. Because he is called to comfort God, so he will establish his judgment on earth, or will bring victory to his judgment through cooperating with a bruised reed and smoking flax. 
we have already paid attention to one principle that God established before he created man. Specifically, he made himself and all his actions on planet Earth dependent on a person who will have the image, will have his image and his likeness. Not just dependent on a person, but only he's dependent on only that person that will have his image and his likeness. A bruised reed and smoking flax are the image of the Son of God and man who can comfort God in allowing him to fulfill his judgment through his likeness in him. And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over all the earth. Genesis 1.26 the words of God emanating from the mouth of God are the only authority of God on which God made himself dependent and which he exalted above all his name. And therefore, in order to proclaim his truth to the peoples expressed in his just judgments and then to establish these judgments on earth as an indisputable, unconditional and perfect law of freedom on which the coastlands could hope, it will be necessary for God to find such a person or such a group of people whom he could anoint and empower to carry out his perfect and impartial, impartial judgment which could comfort his spirit in order to deliver to his judgment such a victory on which his coastlands could trust. Coastlands are an image of the chosen remnant of God. A land surrounded by water is an image of sanctification, separation, in which a person is separated both from the wicked and from all ungodly and all pseudo-piety. As the prophet Elijah did on Carmel, where Israel was gathered, deceived by the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, during the evening sacrifice, Elijah chose twelve rough stones and built them into the altar of the Lord, after which he laid the wood and the sacrifice on the altar. Then he made a moat around the altar. After which he commanded the twelve buckets of water he poured over the burnt sacrifices. And when the water poured around the altar and filled the moat, Elijah cried out to God and said, and it came to pass, Elijah came near and said, 1 Kings chapter 18, 36-39, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all things at your word. Here I have sanctified, I restored the altar of the Lord. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. Bruised reeds and smoking flaxes are titans and warriors of faith at the head of which is Christ, whom the whole world is not worthy of. And with such a bruised reed and smoking flax through which God delivered to his judgment a victory that the coastlands could hope in, in the face of his chosen people, at one time the prophet Elijah appeared, and in the future it will be the one who delights the soul of the Heavenly Father. A reed is an image of our tongue, our lips, through which we unleash the faith of our hearts. Psalms chapter 45 verses 1 through 2. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the thing. The, uh, concerning the king, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Bruising is an expression of complete trust in God or complete dedication to God and refusal to trust in any power and any authority, even if you had them.
Для него я от всего отказался и все почитаю за ссор. Еврей из евреев, из колена Вениаминова, взросшенный, He was taught knowing scripture. And you uh, trust and hope only in the mercy of God. This is a bruised reed. This is an expression of absolute insecurity, poverty, and misery, giving God the opportunity to entrust the person with the power of his judgment. God will not allow his power to mingle with the power of human abilities and capabilities. The fact that he will not break the bruised reed indicates that he will leave this reed in such a state until, through this reed, he accomplishes and affirms his judgment. The property of smoking flax is a state of a good heart, from which, through a bruised reed, good word is poured out in a song about the one in the dignity of the king. Smoking flax is an image of heartfelt faith, yielded by the righteousness of faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Flax is an herb that produces fiber from the stems, from the stems and oil from the seeds. In Israel, from the fiber of flax were made sacred clothing, which was an image of death and resurrection. Uh, the priest walking into the sanctuary he had to take off his garments to wash in the in the copper sea and to be clothed in linen clothing and then he had been adorned with the greatness of other garments but the um, the bottom garments were supposed to be made of linen in israel from the fiber of flax were made uh, sacred clothing and in order for the flax in the form of the priest to about the kingdom of heaven to bear fruit from which sacred garments for a spirit will be made it is necessary that the flax seed die and then rise up in another body. And the fact that this flax was smoking suggests that for the Heavenly Father, the smoking of such flax was an incense. Here it talks about not the fact that it's, um, it's quenching. This uh, smoking flax is incense. God will never quench his, his incense, his fragrance. This means that he will never reject the righteousness that we receive through faith, which is based on the death and resurrection of Christ. And we must know that only with virtues contained in a bruised reed and smoking flax can we fulfill the perfect will of the Father and at the same time have a guarantee that our names will not be blotted out from the book of life. For me, it was always sorrowful when carnal poets take proverbs, take certain images, and they begin to try to demonstrate something that it's not. An apple branch, a broken apple branch, does not match a bruised reed. A tongue that proclaims the faith of the heart and that trusts only a God is a bruised reed. And a smoking flax is our incense. Whatever we may do, but when we go before God in the tribe of Judah, the goodwill, redemption, righteousness, we come to him, not with our works, and we never say, Lord, take a look at everything I've done for you. 
we always come in humility and we say, Lord, you have justified me according to your great mercy and you have redeemed me. I thank you. Let it be to me according to your word. So the perfect will is always going to take the good will and it's going to walk up front. The good will is always going to walk up front. At the sound of the trumpet, it always rises first and goes to, uh, goes to battle. God looks at what he has done and not what we have done. And when he sees that we are representing his works, his righteousness, then this means that you do not rely on yourselves. You do not rely on your works, on your religious experience, and what you have done for the Lord. Nothing. We, we have done nothing. All of this God has done, not us. When people began to worship the apostles, they are saying, why are you worshiping? It's not me. worshiping me. It's not. It's not us. It's God in us. And these apostles understood that if it wasn't for him, they can't do anything. And it's very unfortunate that people attribute to themselves that which God does through them. God immediately turns away from these people because this is not a smoking flax. This is an evil stench, not an incense. The, sec the second point, the powers of the perfect will on the 12th foundation of the walls of heavenly Jerusalem is called to give us the opportunity to look into the perfect law of liberty. James 1.25 but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Let us remember that besides the perfect law of liberty, the power of which is the grace of Christ, there is the law of sin and death, the power of which is the law of Moses. And it is characteristic that both of these laws are located in the nature of man. The law of Moses is law of sin and death because it is specifically the law that gives power to sin. The law of sin and death is in the old man, and the perfect law of liberty is in the law is in the new man. And both of these hostile to each other laws with their own order and with their own values live in one moral body. In the battlefield on which the drama is played out between these two mutually exclusive laws for the right to possess a person is the human heart. And what kind of law a person will have will depend on the choice of the person himself to cooperate or to work with this or that law. And therefore, in order for a person to be able to get the opportunity to penetrate into the perfect law of liberty, he first needs to free himself from the law of sin and death. And as far as we know, such liberation is within the competence and authority of the acceptable will. And it is there where we are separated from the old man. And when we are separated from him, then the law of sin and death is separated from because it is there that the leading power of the soul with which confrontation begins is abolished and only in the perfect will the previously abolished soul is destroyed and then we receive it in a new quality and we build new relationships as it was with the rod of Moses when he had thrown his rod and he had ran away from it, and then the Lord says, take him, take it by the tail, take the lips, the mouth, take your proclamations, proclaiming, and this snake became the rod of God. 
and not a snake any longer. And therefore only in the perfect will, and not sooner, does the person have the opportunity to delve into the perfect law of liberty. That is, when he grows into a perfect man and is born to the throne. And until that time, despite the fact that he will hear the teaching about the kingdom of heaven and see the works of God, he will not be able to understand it. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 2 through 4, an interesting place of scripture. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet, the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Pay attention here. So God had brought them out. The good will had brought them out. But until that time, he says, you saw all of these things, but you were not able to understand it. You did not have a heart that could understand. I think that some of you periodically are enlightened. You have heard a lot, and all of a sudden you begin to, you're enlightened. Oh, I've heard this, but now I'm seeing this in a different way. What happened? Because the time has come. Because at that time, you were on a completely different level of your faith. Your spiritual level was different. And you could not understand and acknowledge that which was in the perfect will. Although you saw what it does, you heard about it, and you proclaimed that it is yours, and it is yours. But... It was yours, but the time for it to be realized had not yet come. The final plague carried out by Moses in Egypt was a Passover. Specifically, it contained the perfect law of liberty, freeing from death, from slavery, poverty, and disease. Therefore, to understand the perfect law of liberty, or the law of grace, means to understand the law of Passover. They had, uh, they had partaken in it, but they couldn't penetrate into it. Otherwise, uh, to partake in the Lord's Passover without delving into the powers contained in it means to partake in the Lord's Passover unworthily. And uh, therefore, before eating the Lord's Passover, it was necessary to fulfill a number of conditions which practically contained the powers of the good and acceptable will, and in this way, they opened up an opportunity for entering the powers of the perfect will. And the first condition expressing the good will was the blood of the Passover lamb with which it was necessary to anoint, to anoint and sprinkle the doors of your dwelling and go inside your dwelling and lock the doors of your dwelling from the inside and not open the doors of your dwelling until morning. The second condition expressing acceptable will was the readiness to move on the path to Mount, God, Mount of God, Horeb. And for this purpose, it was necessary to put on your clothes, put your shoes on your feet, gird yourselves with a belt and have a staff with you. In various places in Scripture, the image of this condition is well reflected in the whole armor of God, which is called the weapon of light. The fact that they uh, were dressed, this um, belt and these shoes. Ephesians 6, 13-17 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above 
above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And the third condition expressing the perfect will was the order which prescribed with what and how the Passover lamb should be eaten. In every family, the fulfiller of the Passover supper was the head of the house, who was responsible for both his home and the Passover. Until we grow to the full measure of the stature of Christ and become the head of our house, which is our own nature, we will not have the opportunity to delve into the perfect law of liberty contained in the Lord's Passover. Consequently, we will not be able to receive grace for grace from the fullness of God, as we will not understand this fullness. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. John 1.16 The New Testament in Greek with an interlinear translation into Russian gives this phrase in the following interpretation. And out of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Thus, this phrase contains the following meaning, that we can receive from the fullness of God, the grace of God or His favor, on one condition, if we, on our part, show Him our grace or our favor. Because one of the primary meanings of the word grace means gratitude, thanksgiving, appreciation, courtesy, and benevolence. If we can show a similar attitude to God in the subject of partaking in Passover, then he on his end will answer us from his fullness contained in the inheritance of Passover. Fullness is the filling, filling of that which fills the content. In practice, God fills the contents of a vessel that delights in God, is open to God, or meets the norms and requirements of the law of grace. From which we can conclude that in order to gain the grace or favor of God, one must show similar favor to him, that is, to express our gratitude to him for the love shown to us. In the face of the dying Son of God, he had demonstrated his love by delivering us, and pursuing the thought of this phrase, Apostle James wrote, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. James 4, 8. This phrase says that God's goodwill for us is dependent on our goodwill toward him. By virtue of this, it is possible to receive grace for grace from His fullness only under one condition. If we accept the grace of God under the conditions outlined in the statute about Passover, this is clearly seen from the semantic meaning of the phrase we have received, which in relation to the acceptance of the grace of God means accept on the terms of sovereignty, accept with fear and awe, wait with patience, take by attack, reach a pursuit, receive as a reward, to inherit from the will established by the testator, grab it using a favorable time, and concentrate on it as if it's the whole purpose of your life. Thus the phrase grace for grace emphasizes nothing more than mutual benevolence and mutual favor between God and man. This is not all. Worthy partaking of Passover in the subject of girding our minds with truth presupposes an absolute and complete separation between the law that came through Moses and the law of grace that came to us through Jesus Christ. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 1, 16-17 
Based on such a semantic meaning, we can conclude that both the law that came through Moses and the grace that came through Jesus represent certain aspects of God's relationship to his chosen people. According to scripture, the law given through Moses was called to be a guide to Christ or a guide to the perfect law of liberty contained in the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus in the subject of partaking in Passover. Thus, the law given through Moses could not be perfect because it was called to build a relationship between the holy, perfect, and righteous God and the imperfect and dependent on sin man. As written, what purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Galatians 3, 19-21. According to these words, the law, in the form in which it was given through Moses, was called to condemn to death, while the law of grace, in the subject of worthy partaking to Passover, representing Christ, was called to condemn death and return a person to the bosom of eternal life. He condemned to death the old nature, and he, in the law itself, he had taken these letters or that which was against us and he then destroyed that which was against us according to the definition of scripture the perfect law of liberty christ jesus called to give life built a new relationship between a perfect and righteous god and a perfect and righteous person Therefore, uh, when the Apostle James wrote, But he who looks unto the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And the phrase, this one will be blessed in what he does, meant that only he who looks unto the perfect law of liberty and will dwell in it will be saved in Christ, delivered and taken out from under the force of the just retribution of God. This means that in order for a person to be blessed in the celebration of Passover, he needs to delve into the essence of the perfect law, which is presented for him in the Passover. So constantly delving into it, we understand that we are justified, that we are already justified. We don't need to do anything else to receive justification. We've already received it. And when we are already justified, then this power of justification gives us the opportunity to practice righteousness. This practice of righteousness on the basis of justification gives us the opportunity to delve into it, the perfect law of liberty. When we look at Passover, what he has done for us, he has already done. The work is already finished. You are justified. Each time, and I will again and again say, in order to um, fix the situation, that the people of God stop praying, Lord, I am a sinner. You can say, Lord, I have sinned before your countenance. Forgive me. I accept your justification. Because you are justified, the righteous of uh, the righteous will fall, but get up and remain righteous. I have I've always mentioned an example that you are uh, holding a child by the hand, and you tell the child be careful, but he was not careful, and he fell, and he fell in, in the mud, and he scraped his knee. What are you gonna do? Are you going to leave him and then go on and say that's it? You're not my child anymore because you were dirty. On the contrary, you are immediately going to jump to him. Wash him, change his clothes, 
Put, put place a band-aid on him and you will comfort him and you're going to say that's okay come calm down i've told you that if you go there you are going to fall see you fell don't go there anymore and on the contrary he will say mom loves you papa loves you be calm because usually when children uh, love when children fall into a difficult situation the love of parents can help them sometimes parents even just kiss their children in the place that hurts and they say oh that's it it doesn't hurt and the child says it doesn't hurt anymore and i think how do people say god is love if they preach that if a person has sinned then god hits a person in that place. God will kiss a person in that place. And he will say, I love you. Get up. You are laying. Get up. You fell. Get up. Devil says you have sinned. You cannot get up. You have no forgiveness. He's a liar. Because if God has justified you once, then he's justified you forever. You don't need to believe the liar. Who are you believing more in? God or devil who sends these thoughts that you have no more forgiveness left. Therefore, in order for a person to be blessed in, uh, in celebrating Passover, he needs to delve into the essence of the perfect law which is presented for him in Passover. Therefore, the verb look into means we'll look inside the law of liberty. We'll look closely at the law of liberty. We'll focus on the law of liberty. We'll peer into the law of liberty. We'll penetrate into the law of liberty and be located in it. We'll make the law of liberty a permanent seat. We'll thank God for being in the law of liberty. We'll proclaim the interests of the law of liberty. So what is this talking about? When we look at something, we are transformed into this image. Pay attention. When a person looks at pornography, for example, he receives images, his lusts are excited, and if he doesn't look at this and he will withhold himself for at least 40 days, he won't think about this. And in order to not think about it, he needs to think about something else. And he needs to think about the law of liberty, about purity. He needs to meditate on it. And then he will have something else in his thoughts. We are transformed into that which we look at. That which we look at literally will leave its mark on us. That which we listen to will literally transform us into that very image. That's why the law of liberty, when you look at what God has done for you there, who he is for you, this begins to work in you. And to reinforce the thought that in the law of Moses and in the law of liberty representing the grace of Jesus is expressed in a certain relationship between God and man, I will cite 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10. through 10. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and, and, and unsubordinate that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law of grace is for the righteous. So God makes a covenant with us when we are righteous. We first repent, we come to God, God forgives us our sin, justifies us, and then having been righteous, we make a covenant of blood and baptism of water. We don't receive righteousness, but we receive a seal of righteousness on a document that is already contained righteousness holy unto the lord and god close us into the son this is the seal of righteousness clothed the woman that is clothed 
in the sun. The moon under her feet, this is the goodwill. God knows those who are his. The garland under the twelve stars, the Lord is there. The crown, the kingdom. We see three seals, these seals figure, figuratively. Now, let's summarize the worthy partaking of Passover or the conditions prescribing how to delve into the perfect law of liberty. First, the person who makes himself dependent on the law that came through Moses loses and tramples on legal rights to the inheritance that contained that inheritance contained in the blood of the cross of Christ. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Galatians 5.4. Second, a person who is dependent on the law of Moses or the law of works is one of the same thing, can never gain the dignity of righteousness before God. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Galatians 5.21 If for your fast and your good works, your evangelism, God is going to justify you, then Christ had uh, Christ died in vain then. Third, a person who has made himself dependent on the law of works enables sin to take possession of him. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The law of works is Galatians, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. As soon as a person begins to rely on what he does for God, sin gains power in him. You give power to sin. You give him this firstborn right, this birthright. Whatever may happen, whatever God may do with you, whatever work he may do through you, be humble. While you have this state of infants, not one hair will fall off your head, and every enemy that you will trample on will not uh, will not come again will not come close to you because the devil has no power against a good heart that is able to withstand. Fourth, sin absolutely loses its power and rights over a person who, through a worthy partaking of Passover, has put himself in dependence on the law of liberty acting in grace. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Romans 6.14 The third power is our perfect will on the twelfth foundation of the wall of heaven Jerusalem is called to give us the authority to bridle our lips according to the requirements of grace. James 3.2 For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in work, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Since this is said, then this means that it is possible to be perfect in order to bridle our lips. To bridle our lips according to the requirements of grace means to speak that which serves for peace and mutual edification. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Romans 14, 17 through 18. So when we search for that which will serve as peace and for uh, edification in our conversations with one another, then our lips are bridled. To bridle our lips doesn't mean to close our mouth and be quiet. This means, in communication, to search for things that serve for peace and mutual edification, and not saying a word and there is going to be some kind of dispute because of it.
Furthermore, to bridle our lips according to the requirements of grace means, upon interpreting the words of God, to speak only that which is the revelation of the heart and not the fruit of our intellect. Songs of Psalm 411, Your lips, O my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. This is a parable. This is this talks about what is under the lips of a perfect person, the bride of the Lamb. It's written that there is honey, honeycomb. In order for honey to be gained, for it to be under the tongue, to become this kind of bee, it is necessary to gather nectar. It's necessary to know how to... This means that when we hear the Word of God, we need to meditate on it, when we make some kind of specific services in order to chew our food, because a food that is not chewed is not going to be honey, it's not going to be milk. Milk and honey are under your tongue, because a person meditates. To bridle our lips according to the requirements of grace means to speak truth in our heart and not backbite with our tongue, nor accept reproach against our neighbor. Psalms 14, 15 verses 2 through 5. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, he who does these things shall never be moved. This is why I again and again I proclaim and I say don't accept reproach against one another and don't pass it along and you will be a perfect vessel of the Lord. You are going to be perfect people. For why do why are there disputes and separations and whatnot? Because someone says, I saw or I heard that which he did not hear or see. And sometimes he is gossiping or slandering. He didn't hear things correctly, passing it along, and then it keeps on passing it along and adding on to it. Because it's natural to us to, uh, when we're passing along some kind of information, adding on to it. Sometimes we don't hear things the right way. Reproach always has a supernatural origin. You've seen how how much has how much this has occurred around this because people had accepted slander against one another, reproach against one another, and pass it along. Obviously, these people are far from perfection and they are going to inherit perdition. They are those who are against God who unite amongst one and one another to practice some kind of evangelism. You can't build evangelism on slander. And what gain is it if he gains the whole world? What benefit is it that he gains the whole world but loses his soul? To bridle our lips according to the requirements of grace means to not say that the former days were better than the present. To never say that the former days were better than the present. For the apostles and prophets had desired to live in our days. They knew that our days are the, mo the best days because the building of the church is upon completion. They wanted to see this, how the city whose maker and builder is God on earth is going to be completed. They were there in the beginning, but we today say, you know, in these years, the Holy Spirit acted in this way and he did not, he is not acting in this way now. Let's read the place of scripture. Ecclesiastes 7.10. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? 
for you do not inquire wisely concerning this. This is your foolishness to say that yesterday was better. Yesterday was worse. Today is better. Because today we are closer to that day. We are closer. We have drawn near how it could be worse when it's better. We have very little left. How is this worse? Very little left. Very little left and he and Christ is coming. To bridle our lips according to the requirements of grace means in temptation to not say that God is tempting you. James 1, 13-15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, he gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see, God does not tempt a person with evil. He does not tempt a person with evil. You'll say, yes, well then, how come a difficulties this, uh, or uh, trials in life, it's evil? Satan tests us with these things, uh, or tempts us with these things, but God allows this, but he himself does not, and he looks at our reaction. Therefore, we must know that if we do not have any lust, then Satan is not going to be able to tempt us. What is a lust? This is a musical instrument. If it's not there, the devil is going to come and there's nothing to play on. When the lust dies, there's nothing to play on. Therefore, in the perfect will, when the old nature is destroyed, devil comes and is silent. There's nothing to play on. An infant completely trusts he is blind and he doesn't see anything, he doesn't hear anything. His, he is focused only on God. He looks at him and he says only that which he hears there. And what he sees there, he also does, just as Jesus himself had done. Furthermore, to bridle our lips according to requirements and grace means to depart from foolish and ignorant disputes. 2 Timothy verses 2, 23-26 But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient and humility, correcting those who are in a position. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. When you see that people are talking to you not to hear truth, but in order to dispute with you or argue, never even reveal this truth, because people want to argue with you. I have told you before that one person came up to me and said, Brother Akadi, I wanted to discuss with you something that is unknown to me in Scripture. And I immediately in my spirit, and God had shown me the essence of this person. He is proud, he is haughty, and he had heard about that which I preach about, and he wanted to argue with me, to quarrel with me. Of course, if we were to do so, I would, have, I would have shown him, because those knowledges that God has given me, I could lead him, I could place any kind of scribe in a fifth corner of a room where he would have no way to argue back, but I don't have a right to argue. I'm going to speak only then when God allows me to speak, or only, or only then when a person has a need. And I had told him, friend, we can't talk because something is not known to you, but something is known to me. We're on different um, 
weight categories. His mouth dropped open and then he told to other people who said, take a look at how I am going to sit him down in a tub of water. And these people came to see, and when he said to me, he wants to argue, and when they heard my answer, he said to them, oh, what a, what a cunning man, he called me. This wasn't cunningness, this was wisdom. Christ also oftentimes remained silent, and if he spoke, he spoke only then when the Father allowed him to. And because he led the Pharisees in the fifth quarter, they didn't repent from this, they grew even more angry. But sometimes God needs to place certain people in the fifth corner. We must know that we shouldn't argue. If people don't want to know the truth, you don't need to tell them anything. Only when they ask, only when they say, give us your oil, or you'll say, well, or they'll say, why are you comforted when all this is surrounding you, but you are so comforted? As one pastor told me, I'm astonished at your, at your comfort level. Look at, look at what others are saying about you. But you are acting so calmly. So our ability to close our spirit, to close our door is a great, great gift that we perhaps will talk about in a later time, but our time has drawn to a conclusion. And I hope that my helpers in our, in our cell groups at home are going to do everything that they can to complete this thought because I have left it in the notes here for you. Let us bow our heads and pray and all of those who desire to enter into the perfect will of the Heavenly Father to challenge devil, I ask you to come out here to the altar and we are going to pray. The Holy Spirit is ready to help you to stop the storm in your soul, to lead you into his perfect will so that the pain and discomfort in the soul can cease. He is ready even when you feel that you have no hope. Devil says you can't leave this, leave this, this, this situation. You are tied to sin. He's lying to you. You can be unchained. You are unchained. You may go. God will help you or deliver you, free you, right now. This is your decision. And I will pray along with you, with your prayer. And it doesn't matter where you are, because the altar is not just that place where you have come here, but that the whole place that is found under the house of prayer. It is an altar unto the Lord. Your eyes closed, your hands raised to the heavens. Pray along with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you with my sorrow, with my shame, with my pain, with my broken honor. I ask you, Forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, protect me, heal me. I accept your word, your freedom through the spilled blood in my heart. And right now, before heaven and hell, I want to proclaim that according to your word, I am washed, I am cleansed, I am healed, 
I am free. I am justified. I am saved. Amen. Amen. Your sins are forgiven and your transgressions in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May he come down upon you, upon you with his holy countenance and have mercy upon you and he give you peace. May around you fall thousands and tens of thousands around you, but not draw near you. May all of the blessings of these come upon you and upon your descendants, and may they be fulfilled upon you, and let the people say, Amen. And now, all together, let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.